Welcome to the Rockcast. My name is Monty Colvin. I identify as a human. And as far as my pronouns, feel free to use anything you want. I promise not to be offended because honestly, I find the whole woke pronoun thing to be kind of asinine and just a lot of bullshit. What can I say? I'm old school. What a jerk. All right, now that I've got all that out of the way, let's get down to business. I've got a whole lot planned today, and I don't want to waste any more time. And so I'm going to get right into it and start it off with an email that I got from Paul Stenning. And Paul has a question, and he says, Hey, Monty, how's it going? What a crazy question. Well, thanks for asking, Paul. Uh, You know, it's going pretty well. Alex and I just got back from a trip to Chicago where we took a little vacation. Now, why Chicago? Well, it started about three years ago. I was married to somebody else at the time, and my ex bought tickets to go see Rammstein in Chicago at Soldier Field. Well, before the show took place, COVID hit, and the show was postponed, and my marriage was canceled. So about a year ago, I was telling Alex how great Rammstein is in concert, And I told her that they'd rescheduled the show for 2022 in Chicago. Well, she thought that sounded like fun, and we bought tickets and uh, waited the entire year. And a couple of weeks ago, we took off for Chicago. We couldn't afford to fly this time, so we just ended up driving. And from Colorado to Chicago, it's about a 14-hour drive. And about six hours in, I came to the realization that uh, I don't really like to drive. Yeah, I know some people do, but uh, I just get bored and restless, and I just want to get there. And we got kind of a late start in the day, so we ended up stopping in Lincoln, Nebraska. And we didn't get there until about 1 in the morning, and the only thing we could find was this crappy motel. And it was by the train tracks... There were motorcycles zooming by, and the air conditioning sounded like a helicopter was about to land on our room. And the next morning, Alex said that she didn't hardly get a wink of sleep all night. I was able to sleep through most of it, and I got about five hours because I'm kind of used to that kind of stuff at home. We have an asshole neighbor who starts his motorcycle up every morning at 6.45 on the dot. So I'm used to not getting much sleep, and so we just got up and continued on our journey. And of course, if you're on the road, you've got to have some tunes. And the playlist this time started out with some Star Set. I had to hear the new Coheed and Cambria and some Paradise Lost. And then Alex mixed in a little Cheap Trick, Beatles, and Ramones. And I said, oh, okay, so you like the old stuff? Well, how about some Todd Rundgren and Utopia? To which Alex countered with some Tooth Grinder and Charlie Sexton. Who? Yeah, you remember Charlie Sexton? If you were around in the 80s, you probably do. He had a song on MTV for a while, and uh, I met him backstage at a concert one night. He was with this band called the Archangels by then, but I told him, Hey, I really like your solo album, that uh, Pictures for Pleasure.
remember seeing posters for Charlie Sexton when he was about 15 and he was playing clubs. He was known as Little Charlie. And I heard he was just this kid who could just wail on guitar. And then when I saw him on MTV years later, I went, oh yeah, there's that kid. Something else we listened to while we were on our way to Chicago was Kicks Blow My Fuse. Now, I did not own that album back in the 80s when they were popular, but I remember seeing their videos and I always thought the bass player was so cool. Everybody in the band had long hair except him. He had this short mop and he played this Les Paul bass and he uh, acted like Angus Young on stage. Well, I found out he was the guy writing all their songs, so I liked him even more for that. And I heard that they recently got back together to do a reunion tour. And I go to YouTube and I find a show that they did in the last couple years. And of course, everybody is back in the band except him. Don't! So I went and found some old footage of him playing live back in the late 80s at Hammer Jacks in Baltimore. And man, I tell you, they were a really good band. You know another song I liked off that same album by Kicks was Don't Close Your Eyes. Everybody had to have a ballad back then. It didn't matter if it was Winger or Cinderella or Mr. Big, everyone had one. And most of them were hits, but my favorite of all of them was this one. I know all this sounds like that 80s hair metal that I usually hate, but uh, just give me a pass this one time, okay? So that was the playlist getting there, but we roll into Chicago at about three in the afternoon. And it was then that I realized that the city of Chicago was going to try and suck us dry of every penny that we had. And it started when we got to the hotel with the bellhop who wanted a tip. I could have easily carried the bags myself to our room, but he did it, so I tipped him. He then tells me that the hotel does not have anywhere to park that I'll have to go and back to a parking lot. 
where another guy says it's gonna cost 54 bucks for every 24 hours. And if you wanna leave within that 24 hours, when you come back, it'll cost you another 54 bucks. It all starts over. To which I said, uh, wow, that's just insane. However, I just went ahead and paid and left the car. <laughs> oh yeah. Now it was still several days before the concert, but uh, here's how my mind works. A few months ago, I checked the schedule to see if the Cubs or the White Sox were going to be in town. And sure enough, I see that the week of the show that the White Sox are at home playing the Kansas City Royals, one of my all-time favorite teams. And yes, I'm well aware that the Kansas City Royals suck now. They're basically the equivalent of a minor league team, but I still had to go. The other cool thing is that Alex's daughter now lives in Chicago and Alex doesn't get to see her that much, so we asked her if she'd like to meet us at the game. And so we took the subway over to the stadium. I found these great seats online that were like on the third row, and it was just a blast. I'd never been to what used to be called Kaminsky, uh, now it's called something else, but it was a cool ballpark, and as a Chicago super fan might say, the Royals basically had no chance at beating the Sacks. And the final score was the Sox 92, the Royals 2. And to celebrate, I had a big bratwurst, which unfortunately got lodged in my colon. Oh, oh, that hurts. The next day was Thursday, and I told Alex I cannot go to Chicago without getting a Chicago-style pizza. And so that's what we did that afternoon. And then that night, Alex's daughter works at this outdoor theater place called Ravenia. And they have lots of big acts come there, like Stevie Nicks and Sting. But on this particular night, they were having something called Yacht Rock. And I had never heard of Yacht Rock in my life. But she explained, well, it's this group that uh, plays 70s soft rock hits. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, I'm game. And I asked, well, can I wear what I've got on, which happened to be an Iron Maiden t-shirt? And she said, yeah, sure, it's casual. And so we take a train and go all the way across Chicago. I think it took about 30 minutes or so. And when we get there, it looks like there's a couple of thousand people and a lot of them are wearing sailor hats because, you know, it's Yacht Rock. And most of them, I would say, were in their 50s or 60s. And it kind of felt like I was at a Jimmy Buffett show. Not that I would know because I've never been to a Jimmy Buffett show. But most of these people looked like they were ready to get drunk and hear some Hall & Oates covers. Woohoo! Yeah! And sure enough, the band comes out and they open with She's Gone by Hall & Oates. And I gotta be honest, uh, they were actually really good. They pretty much nailed all the songs they were covering, but, uh, you know, there were a few songs that I still hate. Like, they did that song, uh, Let's Hear It For The Boy, that wretched tune from uh, Footloose. Oh, dear God. And they did that Michael McDonald song, uh, I keep forgetting, I'm not in love anymore. Kill me. But, uh, you know, I actually wouldn't hate Michael McDonald if he would have just kept doing background vocals for Steely Dan. You know, like, Pig! Yeah, because I actually like Steely Dan, and this Yacht Rock band, they even did a Steely Dan song. They did a really cool cover of My Old School, and uh, I thought that was great.
So yeah, they did some cool stuff like that, but then they turned around and they did the unthinkable. I'm sitting there and I hear the Yacht Rock singer say, and now we're gonna do some Rupert Holmes. <laughs> and I thought, uh, you don't mean that Pina Colada song. But yeah, that's exactly what it was. is horrible. Yeah, that's gotta be one of my least favorites of all time. And that's really about as bad as it got all night. And by the end, I was okay with the Jerry Rafferty and the Christopher Cross. And I was actually kinda curious how this whole Yacht Rock thing came about. And so later we looked them up on the internet and it turns out they've been around for quite a while. And the whole thing started when uh, they just did this one show as kind of a gag where they were like just going to play some old 70s pop songs. And the crowd loved it, so the club owner said, hey, why don't you guys come back and do that again? And they were like, no, that was just for fun, Uh, no. But then the club owner offered them a big wad of cash and they were like, "Uh, okay. And so they came back and did another show. Everybody went crazy and uh, they kept doing show after show. And it eventually grew into what it is now, which is them taking this thing on the road and playing about 100 shows a year. So there you go. There's an idea for some of you struggling musicians. You've beat your head against the wall for years trying to get a record deal or for somebody to play your music on the radio. But, uh, you know, maybe it's just time to give up your dreams and learn how to play some songs by Toto. Yeah! So after the Yacht Rock show was over, we had to take the train back to where we were staying. And when we finally get on, it's just filled with 40 and 50 year old people just drunk off their asses. And they were just so obnoxious, like they thought they were still in college. But you know, who could blame them after having their minds blown by such an incredible version of Hotel California? And I actually thought to myself, oh God, please let me out of here. And strangely enough, I guess God heard me. Because after about five minutes, the train stopped and the conductor said, all right, this is as far as we're going. You're going to have to get off here and get an Uber. And at first I thought, well, maybe the conductor's just as sick of these people as I am. But no, as it turns out, uh, somebody earlier in the night had jumped in front of a train and killed themselves. And I think that probably happens a lot in Chicago, but I never did find out what the deal was. But uh, as far as I know, it had nothing to do with somebody seeing a Yacht Rock concert. Hey, that is uncalled for. Anyway, it took us about an hour and a half to get back to the hotel where we got some sleep. And the next day, which was Friday, we continued our Ferris Bueller week off. And we literally only had to walk across the street to get to the Chicago Art Institute Museum. And if you've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which I think everyone has, it's the same museum that they were in in that movie. And we just saw some incredibly famous paintings. Some Van Goghs, some Picassos, it was great. And as an artist, the thing I like to do is just get right up close as I can. And I'll look at the brush strokes and the way they use color. And I just learn from it and get inspired. Of course, there's a lot of modern stuff that's kind of bullcrap. If you get a certain reputation as being famous, then you can pretty much wipe your butt on a canvas and somebody will think it's genius. Which is kind of discouraging for somebody like me trying to make a living doing their art. It's kind of like when I saw Howie Mandel interview Paul Stanley and he said, I know you're an artist, but how much do you get for your paintings? And he said, I get about $60,000 a painting. And Howie said, really? And Paul said, yes, I've made about $20 million over the years on my art. Woo! 
And I'll admit that was a little hard to hear. My goodness! But speaking of things that are a little hard for me to hear, after we left the museum, we crossed the street and there was a jazz festival going on. Which would have been awesome, but uh, I just don't like jazz. Never have. And so instead, we just went and had some Chinese food. Good idea. And that would finally bring us to Saturday, the day of the Rammstein concert. And the show started at 7, but we had general admission seats, so I thought, let's get there when the gates open at 5. And we looked it up, and it turned out that it was only about a 20-minute walk from our hotel to the stadium. And so we left in plenty of time. We get to the stadium, and we see some lines. And I asked this guy that worked there which gate we were supposed to go in. And he points to his left and he says, if you've got seats, you're right there in that short line. But if you've got tickets on the field, you got to go back there. And we turn around and we see a line of people underneath this bridge. So we start walking and after we get under the bridge, we realize this line is massive. And it goes up and down this walkway and we keep walking and I'm thinking it's got to end sooner or later. But it just keeps going. And you've heard people say that line was a mile long. Well, we just keep walking and walking. And I swear to God, I think this line was a mile long. And the farther we walk, I, I'm just going, I can't believe this. And we eventually end up going down the street of a neighborhood. And we finally reach the end of the line. And we finally make our way all the way back to the gates where we started. But then, of course, you've got to go through security. And Alex didn't want to bring a purse, so she just wore a little fanny pack. And all she had in there was the room key, a little makeup, and maybe some gum. But they're like, nope, you can't take that in there. No fanny packs. And she's like, you're kidding me. And they're like, nope, you can either take it back to your car or just throw it away. But here, you can take this sandwich bag and put your stuff in there and go on in. So she puts her stuff into the clear baggie and then throws the fanny pack away. Because, you know, they couldn't just look in the fanny pack and see that there's nothing in there of any danger. No, no, of course not. But we finally get into the stadium, we're on the field, and we get about maybe 30 yards from the stage. And I mean to tell you, this is one of the biggest stages I've ever seen in my life. But we still gotta wait about an hour and a half until anything happens. But finally about 7 o'clock, these two chicks from France come out on a side stage. And for about the next 30 or 40 minutes, uh, they just play piano. And they were real good, but it wasn't what anybody came there to see. But around 8 o'clock, after waiting three years, it was finally time for Rammstein. And the first thing that happens is you see the Rammstein logo and it raises up to the top of the stadium. And then the drummer comes out and he just stands there for a little bit and the crowd's going crazy and then all of a sudden he just hits his snare. And when he does, at the same time, there's this huge explosion, fireworks, smoke, and you immediately went, yeah, this is a Rammstein show. And I can't begin to tell you everything that went on in this show, but I will tell you that once again, it was probably the best show I've ever seen. And it wasn't just the fire and the confetti and the amazing light show. It's mainly that they're so cool, so fun, and uh, the music is just so badass. And I was thinking about this today. It's not that they're these amazing virtuoso players that blow you away with their talent. Some of it's fairly simple, but they've just got these great riffs and they just beat your face in. And they rocked for two and a half hours and after it was over, Alex agreed, best show she's ever been to.
Rammstein was wonderful, worth all the money, worth all the hassle. But Sunday, it was time to head back to Colorado. And on the way home, we stopped at some good friends in Iowa, the Scott McAleer family. And I know you don't know who they are, but trust me, they're good people. They fed us, they gave us a place to sleep, and they also made us do some cornholing. What? Ah, oh, come on, you know, the game where you toss the bean bags. Oh! Yeah, it was actually a lot of fun, I just wasn't very good at it. But it was great to see them, and then Monday morning we continued the long drive home. And once again, the music playlist went like this. We started with some Rammstein, listened to Left Overture by Kansas, and we listened to a couple of rock casts. Why? Yes, we listened to my own podcast because they're just that good. The ego on this guy. We listened to the Everglow by May, and uh, we also listened to the new Megadeth album. And Eric in Orange County wanted to know what I thought of the new Megadeth, and so let's do that right now. So I'll be really honest, I've only listened to it once on the ride home from Chicago. And I haven't listened to it since, so you're getting my first impressions. And what I would say about it is that it's very Megadeth. If you like old thrashy Megadeth, I think you'll dig it. It's just got tons of heavy riffs and leads, and uh, some of it even reminds me of stuff off of P-Cells. Also, Dirk's drumming on here is incredible. And at one point, I turned to Alex and I said, listen to the drums. How does anybody play like that? It's just amazing. My only criticism would be that uh, by the end, I was getting a little worn out. It was all kind of starting to sound the same. But hey, I still love Megadeth. I love Dave Mustaine. And there definitely aren't any pop hits on here. It's just in-your-face metal. 
Okay, so that's a little of the new Megadeth, and that was our vacation to Chicago. And we had a great time, but by the time we got back, I was about ready to lose my patience from all the truck drivers cutting me off, people in Chicago honking their horns for seemingly no reason, and idiots on the highway who drive in the left-hand lane and they're going way too slow but yet refuse to get over. Complete idiots. Let me just say this. If you're one of those people that does that and you don't want to be like Ricky Bobby and go fast, just get the hell out of that lane. See, I used to know somebody who would do that and it drove me crazy. And one day I asked her, uh, why are you in the left-hand lane if you're not going to drive over 65? And she said, I don't like to change lanes. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, people hate you. That's correct. Anyway, all that to say, by the time we got home, I was fed up with driving. And when I pulled into the parking lot of where we live, I saw that there was only one spot left by our apartment. And I had a car full of luggage, and right as I was turning to go into the spot, some chick cut me off and took it. Ah! Well, needless to say, I was outraged. And as I was raining blows down upon her head, all I could think is, this is why I hate people. I understand how you feel. Okay, so I did embellish the story a little bit. I didn't actually beat her ass, but I wasn't happy, I'll tell you that. Are there things that make you angry? Alright, let's do a little Watts on TV. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is a show that I used to watch every year and then I would tell you about it so you didn't have to watch it. And that would be the MTV Video Music Awards. And if you were around in the 80s, you remember that MTV used to play videos before their entire programming schedule consisted of ridiculousness and catfish. And there was actually even a time back in the late 80s where you might be able to see Guns N' Roses wedged between Madonna and Boy George. And you never knew if Slash or Duff were going to show up drunk or if C.C. DeVille was going to start playing the wrong song. But as the years went by, there was less and less rock and roll and metal. And the VMAs got worse and worse until, you know, the best you could hope for was maybe Britney Spears showing up half naked carrying a snake. So I pretty much stopped watching for years and I just assumed that Taylor Swift was probably going to win everything. And honestly, I didn't know if there still was a VMAs. But a few weeks ago, I see it listed on the TV schedule. And my first reaction was, oh no, I'm not going to watch that, am I? But then my curiosity got the best of me and I said, oh well, what the hell, I'll record it and if I don't like something, I'll fast forward. And that's what I did and literally within minutes of watching this thing, I started experiencing a wide range of feelings and emotions. Starting with irritation. That was followed by confusion and then disbelief. And then at one point, I finally just started feeling kind of sick. Because it was like I was watching the end of civilization. It was like I was realizing that the world was crumbling before my eyes. It was like I was seeing the fall of mankind and being dragged at the same time through the pit of hell. And yet, I kept watching. And I kept seeing people I had never heard of before performing and getting awards. But all that seemed secondary to the real purpose of this show, which was to promote certain agendas. And that's when I realized, you know, MTV's main objective has never been about music. It's always been about destroying the moral fiber of our society. But that's just my opinion. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. Or maybe that's your thing. And you can probably catch it on YouTube or somewhere like that. I'll advise people before watching it. It is indeed very gay. Speaking of YouTube, as always, I watched a bunch of stuff on there. And the first thing I ran onto was something called Attack of Life. Get a pen. You're going to want to write that down. Attack of Life because it was a documentary about one of the most important bands of the late 80s. And of course, I could only be talking about Bang Tango. Oh, 
I've joked about them many times on this show before because I always heard the name and I always thought it was funny. And I guess I always thought of them as one of those lame 80s hair metal bands, but I never knew much about them. But I saw it somehow on YouTube and it said Bang Tango Movie and I thought, alright, I'll watch it while I paint. And I've been watching a lot of these things here lately about, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s rock and metal bands. Because I was in one of those bands, uh, you know, we came out around 90, 91. We got signed and our label told us we were going to be really big. And I found out that there were so many bands like us and like that that uh, have the same story. One day everything was going great and then all of a sudden Nirvana and grunge come along and uh, it's just over. We managed to survive and put out more albums and lasted another eight years or so. But other bands like Kicks or Bang Tango, they just broke up after a while. And that's what happened in this documentary. They eventually break up for a while. But then the singer decides he's going to keep it going by hiring all new guys and calling it Bang Tango. And he's obviously got some kind of drug or alcohol problem going on with himself. And that's when this film gets really pathetic. They're playing these places with literally nobody in the audience. And there's moments toward the end that kind of reminded me of either Spinal Tap or the Anvil movie. And for that reason, I'm going to recommend Attack of Life, the Bang Tango movie, on YouTube. It is spectacular. Okay, this next thing was recommended to me by a good friend. He's a Christian guy, and he was watching this preacher on YouTube. And right in the middle of this Bible study, the preacher mentions me. I'm, I'm sorry, come again? That's right, I said me. And my friend sent me a link to it, and I went and listened to it, and uh, I thought, this is funny, I better play it for you guys. So here's a snippet. Have you ever had a famous person that you look up to? I remember when I was a teenager, there was this obscure rock band that I loved named the Galactic Cowboys. I was at one of their concerts with my best friend Scott, and I remember the bass player took off his shirt, his sweaty shirt, and like a little fanboy, I raised my hand and he threw it to me. Yeah, I don't know. It was probably the most disgusting thing that I did that entire year, but I actually carried his soaking, sweaty shirt around for the rest of the show and the band after them, which was King's X. I had this band on a pedestal in my mind and I gladly accepted the stinky, dingy gift that I received from them. Imagine a person you see as lifted up, someone that's somewhat unapproachable, someone that you would even take scraps from to get close to. So there you go. I think that was the first time I've ever been included in a minister's sermon. And I'm not really sure where he was going with all that, but I'm pretty sure that his point was, my shirt was a filthy, sweaty, disgusting thing. And when I threw it to him and he caught it, it may possibly have been uh, the worst thing that ever happened to him. And I believe his name is Pastor Darren, and I just want to apologize to Pastor Darren. And I promise I will never do that again. But let me kind of explain. When I was on the road back then, uh, a lot of times we would get these promotional t-shirts. And they would say Galactic Cowboys or something like that. And a lot of nights I would wear those on stage. And since I'm not one of those guys that just stands there and plays, uh, I would come off stage just soaking wet. And for a while I would go back to the bus, I'd take my shirt off and hang it up. But after a day or two, my shirts would be stinking up the whole bus. And guys like Ben Huggins would be going, uh, what's that smell? I think it's coming from Monty's bunk. The whole thing stinks. So I got the idea. I'll wear the shirt while I'm on stage, but at the end of the set, I'll take it off and I'll throw it. And if somebody wants it, they can have it. That way, I don't have to do as much laundry and I make some fan happy. Uh, well, I thought I made him happy. Uh, apparently, I was doing something that was just revolting. Shame on you! 
Okay, the next thing I watched on TV was a documentary about Kiss called Kistory, and you can catch that right now on Hulu. And since it is Hulu, you know that for every five minutes of show that you watch, you will be force-fed two minutes of commercials. And this all kind of confuses me. Because, like, if you want to get rid of the commercials on YouTube, you've got to pay, like, 11 or 12 bucks. If you don't want to pay, it's free, but you just got to put up with the annoying ads. However, with Hulu or Amazon Prime, you have to pay for their service. But somehow they can still torture you with the commercials. Regardless, the Kiss documentary is really pretty good. It's mostly Gene and Paul telling the story because Ace and Peter apparently refused to be in it. And Gene and Paul mainly paint Peter and Ace as drug-using alcoholics that they couldn't depend on. And I tend to believe that and I totally understand if that was the case. Because I've had people in my life in the past who have had uh, drug and alcohol addictions and they were almost impossible to deal with. And I'm not talking about anybody that I was in a band with, just to make that clear. But as far as this documentary, I thought they were pretty honest, as much as I could tell. Gene admitted that his addiction was his ego and women. And Paul confessed that while they were making The Elder, they all thought it was going to be a masterpiece. But when it was done, Paul said he walked by a store that had a poster up in the window. And he said, I looked at it and my hand was on a doorknob and I said, oh my God, what have we done? I'll have to admit myself that there's been a lot of Kiss stuff over the years that I didn't really care for. In fact, I didn't like much of anything during that period where they didn't wear the makeup. When they were wearing the sequins and trying to look like Bon Jovi, uh, I didn't like much of the music either. I didn't like songs like Crazy Crazy Nights, and I thought Lick It Up was one of the worst videos ever. However, in the 90s, when they put the makeup back on and did a reunion tour with the original lineup, I was there. And a few years ago, I got to see them a couple of more times, and I think they're still great. And if you like Kiss, I think you'll like Kistory, so check it out. Cool. And of course, I watch other things besides music-related shows. For example, I've watched this show called Big Brother for about 20 years now. It's a reality show where they put, quote, normal people into a house together, blah, blah, blah. And most of the people are usually annoying, and I end up hating them all by the end of the season. But for years, I've watched it, and I've really enjoyed it. But for the last two seasons, this show has become so woke and politically correct that I started to hate it. For instance, last season, there was an alliance of about six black people. And one by one, they voted all the white people out based on skin color. And rather than condemning this, it was applauded by Julie Chen and everyone at CBS. Despite all that, I thought this season, hey, I'll try it again. It was an all-new cast, and I thought maybe things will be different. And for about half the season, it was, and it was pretty good. But all of a sudden, they started playing the race card, they made this white guy out to be a racist, kicked him out of the house, and it was all complete bullshit. And that's when I said, you know, I am done with this show. Screw Big Brother, screw CBS, and Julie Chen can kiss my ass. And I have not watched it since, so uh, there's some breaking news. This is enormously important. And finally, the thing I'm going to be watching the most on TV for the next several months is football. Every time I turn on Monday Night Football and that music starts, da-da-da-da, it takes me back to when I was 11 or 12 and I could hear Howard Cosell go, Monday Night Football. And oh my God, it was just such a big deal to me and it just felt so important. These days, uh, we've got Joe Buck. Ugh. Yeah, but I'm still going to watch. Maybe with the sound off, but I will watch. And of course, this year, the season opener was the Bills and the Rams. But the main thing was I heard that Ozzy Osbourne was going to be playing at halftime. And the first thing I thought is, is that really going to happen? Is he going to be able to stand up and do that? And so I made sure I recorded it, and then when they came back for halftime, they showed about 15 seconds of Ozzy. 
and that was it. And so I had to go on YouTube the next day and try to find the whole performance. And what I saw, honestly, was not great. He comes up out of the floor, he clutches his mic stand, and pretty much doesn't move from there. His band looked like they were guys from some local bar band, or dudes that he had just gotten off the street who had never been on a stage in their lives. And it all just seemed kind of awkward. And the first song they did was Patient Number no. 9, which is my least favorite song on the new album. But they did bring out Zach Wilde to do the second song, which was Crazy Train. And of course, Zach always looks cool, but uh, it kind of seemed pantomimed. But that was it, in case you didn't see it. But how about Ozzy's new album? Is there anything on there that's any good? Well, actually there is, in my opinion. After hearing Patient Number no. 9, I thought I was going to hate the whole thing. But actually, I don't. There's some catchy stuff on here that I really like, and uh, there's also some blistering leads from Tony Iommi, Jeff Beck, and of course, Zach Wilde. Before I go, I wanted to ask you to please visit my site, monicalvinart.com. And if you'd like to commission me to do a painting for you, you can reach me there or on Facebook. Christmas will be here soon, and paintings make great gifts. I just did one for John Paul LeClaire up in Wisconsin, who I refer to as John Paul Georgringo. And Josh Farah, who is an incredibly talented guy, bought a Ty Tabor painting off my site. And so I'd like to thank both of those guys for keeping me alive. But besides paintings, I've also got refrigerator magnets and prints on my site. And I just put a bunch of new ones on there that are as low as 25 bucks. And that includes free shipping. And I think even the cheapest of bastards can afford that. Uh, yeah. Here's some more of the new Ozzy, but I'll be back soon with more fun and mayhem. But until then, this has been Monty saying take care, don't let anyone tell you what to like, unless it's me. And rock on!
that's it. 